Part Two of The Boy with the White Hair, written and performed by Nick Thurston. But the child was not dead, for there was another on the slope that fateful day, unseen by Hafnir's servant. That other someone had also been listening in the way of the old ones, and had heard a very different set of instructions whispered on the wind. Now what have we here? said a surprised voice. The crunch of boots in snow could be heard, and a moment later, the kindly, round face of a man appeared in the patch of sky cut out by the baby's swaddling. Why, it's a little one. How have you got all the way up here? Look at this charm around your neck. Can it be? Seern has granted my prayers? Oh... If only my wife were alive to see this day. A pair of strong hands lifted the bundle and brought the baby into a warm embrace. Perhaps he had chanced upon that place. Perhaps he had been beckoned there by the whispering wind. Whatever the case, the man who now held Hafnir's daughter was a kindly Kurag herd whose wife had been unable to provide him with a child before she died. I have no doubt that you are a gift from the white goddess herself, said the Kurag herd. And since you do not cry, even while her breath stings the very skin, I shall name you in her honor. From here on, you will be called Fredna Sirni, Winter's Daughter. The Karag herd, whose name was Mulad, brought the child down from the mountain to his little hut in a remote, all-but-forgotten-about valley. There he raised her as his own. The years went by, and the baby turned into a babbling toddler, and then into a loquacious girl. Before Mulad knew it, she had become a maiden, on the cusp of womanhood. And what a fine one she was shaping up to be. Like her mother, she had pale white skin, blue-black hair, and eyes like cold iron. Having been raised in an isolated valley, she was ignorant of the goings-on in the wider world. She knew only the simple pleasures of golden sun and open sky of warm grass in spring, and cool brook water in summer. But although Mulad instilled in Fretna Sirni much of his own gentle nature, she had inherited her blood father's hot temper. There were times when she flew into such a rage that the herdsmen could do nothing to calm her, and he found himself baffled by the strength of her emotion. Yet despite their differences, Mulad and his adopted daughter lived a simple, happy life together, 
she learned from him the arts of the herder. He taught her to care for the brutal, long-legged mountain goats we call kurags. He taught her how to summon them by singing to them, what herbs to graze them on when they fell ill, and how to ease the birth of their kids. On her own, she learned the hidden trails that cut through the mountains of the Halidrake, and how to tell by the language of birds when the wolves or Nordragons were out. She learned to love the company of the stars. Mulad also taught her such simple spells and charms as he used in his daily life. For back then, the Nargoths were stronger than they are today, and magic was much more common. Out in the hinterlands, it was commoner still. Even a herdsman such as he might know a handful of ancient gestures, runes, and words of power which had been passed down to him through the years. They were not the great works of wizards, of course. Those had died out long ago. Yet still, these were such spells as might calm the wind, or make the raindrops less like to fall on a night's shelter, or raise the spirits on a sad and lonesome crag. Little Fretney, which was the girl's nickname, took to this minor witchery as if born to it. She practiced the spells he taught her, and quickly learned to cast them better than he could. She even began to discover spells of her own. Her adopted father could only shake his head in wonder. Fretney's childhood was the brightest time in Mulad's life. The years passed in peace and harmony, and the two of them were very, very happy. Mulad's only sorrow was that his wife had not lived to join them. He spoke of her often, so that Fretney could feel her presence, and at every meal they included her in their sakwakani. When Fretney came of age, Mulad brought her to the nearest Sunatala to begin her initiation into womanhood. The temple was situated high on the flanks of a snow-capped volcano, overlooking a long valley of deep forests and blue lakes. As the Kurag heard and his daughter approached, the mountains smoked and rumbled in the distance. The sound echoed from the valley walls like thunder. That is Otkatalum whispered Mulad, and bowed his head, where the first folk came out of the earth. Like all women's Tala, the temple on Otkatalung was inhabited exclusively by the priestesses we call the Sunahulani. They took Fretni in, and Mulad went back to his herd. For thirty days, she sat in their circle, asking questions and receiving their patient wisdom. They taught her the songs of our people. They showed her our sacred crafts. They prepared her mentally and physically for the trials all women must face. Above all, they taught her how to trust. In her own power, 
and in the love and support of those by her side. In the evenings, after supper, they sat quietly together on the porch of the temple and drank cups of hot yarrow tea. The mountain rumbled restlessly behind them. Fretney sipped from a cracked earthenware cup and marveled as the snow-streaked pinnacles across the valley turned purple in the twilight. The distant calling of night birds down below made her chest quiver with longing. Longing for something she wanted desperately but could not name. Her month at the Sunatala culminated in the rite of passage we northerners call the Nithasunakon. In single file, the priestesses led Fretni up a narrow path that came to an end on an open ledge, high above the valley. The ground was strewn with smooth red and white stones in the form of a spiral. A low stone wall bordered the space along its outer edge, and on the inner, an ominous crack led into the mountain. Here the women stopped and formed a circle around her. On sacred drums, stretched with reindeer hide and decorated with powerful symbols, they began a slow and solemn beat. The sun had almost set. A curtain of shadow approached across the valley. With great reverence, one of the priestesses offered Fretney a drum of her own. Another pressed a purse of black henbane seeds into her hand. The sun melted behind the peaks in the west, and the leader of the Sunahulani struck out her hand and pointed into the darkness. Keeping the beat on her own drum, Fretney ventured into the cave. It was like walking into a cloud of ink. No sooner had she gone within than she lost sight of everything, even her own body, even her hand in front of her face. She pressed on blindly, feeling her way in the gloom. Gradually, the passage began to descend down irregular, rounded steps. Bulbous shapes oozed from the stone on either side. Deeper and deeper she went. The further she got from the entrance, the warmer the air became, and the surface of the tunnel began to radiate with dull heat. It was as if she had entered into the body of some immense living being. At last she came to a chamber whose floor was split open by a jagged fissure. An orange glow throbbed in the depths. Hot, dry air rose from below. She had reached the heart of the mountain. Her hand came to a stop above the surface of the drum. The last beat sifted away, and a deafening silence took its place. In the dim, coal-like light, she beheld that the cavern walls were covered with designs. There were handprints, animal figures, and the stick-like forms of men and women. 
As her eyes wandered from one image to the next, Fredney felt a sense of profound connectedness that had eluded her all her life. It seemed to root her into the earth itself. These paintings, she knew, were the work of her ancestors. Something of their presence yet remained. She felt it hovering in the air. How many thousands of years had it been since the first of them had set foot in this cave? An unbroken line, mother to daughter, father to son, had now brought Fretney to stand in the same place. She gazed into the crevice. Deep, deep within, the embers of creation seethed. Could her father be right? Was this where the first folk had emerged from the earth? Kneeling in reverence, Fredney removed her clothes and cast the henbane seeds into the crack. There was a flare of orange sparks. Tendrils of smoke rose from the pulsating depths, burning her nostrils. Her head began to swim. Visions came. For three days and three nights, Fretney stood in a trance above the cleft, chanting, swaying, and struggling with the contents of her mind. On the third night, just when her body and spirit were on the brink of collapse, some ultimate inner barrier was finally breached. The light in the depths went out. The goddess Aura, the maker of fortune, appeared in the darkness. She opened her all-seeing eye, and in a single, brilliant moment, the great mystery was revealed. The void opened. Body and mind disintegrated. Stars, planets, and nebulas raced by on all sides as some eternal, limitless being that was neither Fredney nor any other spun through the universe. All was light. All was emptiness. All was love. And then nothing. Nothing. The person who staggered, blinking from the cave into the first light of sunrise, was not the same one who had entered. The Sunahulani embraced her, wrapped her in a warm red cloak, and sang the song of welcome. She cried tears of relief. She had not been abandoned to face the darkness alone. They had been waiting for her the whole time, sending their energy into the cave. She felt an inexpressible gratitude for all of them. They congratulated her, kissing her forehead and cheeks, Then they gave her her second name, her woman's name. It was Thula, Woman of Ice. When Thula returned to the Valley of the Kurogs and rejoined her adopted father, neither of them knew quite what to say. He was sheepish and awkward, She was embarrassed. But when she embraced him, he broke down in tears 
and hurried her inside to a table laden with roasted hazelnuts, mountain cherries, and what was clearly his very best attempt at a honey cake. As he wiped his cheeks with the back of his arm, she took a bite. The cake was as hard as pine bark. With a heroic effort, she swallowed and asked politely if there was anything to drink. Suspecting something was amiss, Mulad tested a piece. He made a horrified grimace and straightaway tossed the rest of the cake out to the Kurogs. Maybe you'd better help me make another one, he said. As they hovered around the hearth, conversation came in bits and pieces, and by the time the cake was done, it was as if Thula had never left. During all their years together, neither Thula nor Mulad had ever ventured far from their valley. When they needed supplies that were difficult to come by in the mountains, such as iron blades for their knives, or fabric to make luxuries like socks, they headed into the town of Nust. But beyond that scrawny, out-of-the-way place, they never saw more of civilization. One evening, after returning home from such a trip, Molod was surprised to see his daughter sulking at the table. She had only eaten a bite or two. Now she was pushing her food around the plate and sighing like a set of bellows. Her eyes had taken on a look that worried him. It seemed that she was gazing at something far away, beyond the walls of the cottage, perhaps beyond the mountains themselves. Well, go on then, he said. No need to waste a good dinner. What's the matter? Why don't we ever go to the places they speak of at the Suthi? she replied the Suthi being Noost's bedraggled little inn. Why do we stay up here all the time? I love the mountains and our life here, but why don't we ever go out into the world? I used to think this was everything there was, but that's not true at all. On their last visit, a scald had performed in the common room of the inn. He had told tales of faraway lands, bustling cities, and grand parties attended by all manner of fascinating people. Thula had been enraptured. I should like to see the seven falls of the Sudden Valley, said Thula, her eyes lighting up, and climb the emerald steps of Braestil. I, I want to know what a city is like. I should like to set my feet on the sand of foreign shores and feel the embrace of silken garments. She was using the scald's words now, but Mulad could see that she meant them. Most of all, she said, looking at her father pleadingly, I'd like to meet people. And not just people like the ones in Nust, but people like the ones in the stories. People like Thane Hafnir and Maya Esenaya and their daughter, the Princess Freerla. Oh, father, I want to speak to people and learn from them and be a part of it all. I want to have friends that aren't goats, and someday, perhaps, to meet a man worthy of my affection. It's not good for me to be stuck up here all the time. 
But before we learn what Mulad said in reply, we must pause and turn the wandering eye of our story back to Othgard. For in the decade and a half since Thula's departure, much had happened down in the Sudden Valley that cannot be left untold. So let us now climb back through the years, returning to the days that followed Thula's birth, and see what took place in our absence. After the hideous theft of her newborn daughter, the mysterious white woman, Rostya, disappeared from the castle. She spoke to no one, and no one saw her go. All she left behind was an ominous mark, carved into the oaken door of the keep. It was the rune Ving, Vengeance. Hafnir, his heart and mind cut to pieces by all that had taken place, was glad to be rid of her. He desired to put the whole tragic episode behind him. What else could he do? The kingdom needed his attention. Hardening himself against remorse, he swore Gotmard to silence, put forth to his court that the infant had died in childbirth, and resolved never to speak of what had happened again. He went on with life, but only as the shadow of a man. He stood often by the window in a tall tower room, gazing emptily at the world beyond. Why? he asked the silence, again and again. Why had he done what he had done? But no answer ever came. And yet... The days lengthened. Winter relaxed her hold. The nights grew brighter, and when the rains came, they were a balm on the land. Rotten ice melted. The fields about the castle turned green. And as the countryside came back to life, Hafnir dared to wonder, might the barren slopes of his own heart do the same? he began to look for a sign. It was at this time that one of his woden came to the castle to report that Morai had been found growing in the valley. Leaping from his throne, Hafnir took the wood warden by his shoulders and thrice forced him to repeat himself. Could it be? The Morai? Here? If so... It could only be a signal that the gods had forgiven him. When the Wothen drew from his satchel a small white mushroom with a pale orange halo, Hafnir broke down and wept for joy. The Morai! he sang out and kissed the shocked Wothen on his sun-browned brow. Ah, the Morai, tender fruit of the earth, whose flesh reminds us of our capacity for rebirth. Morai, whose presence heralds the coming of the Hana, ritual of healing, festival of new love, rekindler of old friendship. Morai, king among keys, eater of the dead, you have come to set me free. For the first time in months... 
Hope and joy showed themselves in the halls of Oathguard. The appearance of the sacred mushrooms could not be denied. Riders were sent to every hold in Elgasgond, each with the same message. The gods had selected the Sudden Valley as the location of the next Hana, that sacred festival in which our civilization is renewed. The Morai had been found in a barrow-ringed field near the castle. It is known to us as the Nitikos, the Stone Meadow, for on the summit of each barrow mound stands a guardian stone of the first folk. A better place for a Hauna would be impossible to find, for in that field the grass grows like an enormous green carpet interrupted only by sweet-smelling wildflowers and by open groves of willow and beech. Fairy circles abound there, and the land is watched over by powerful magic. Thane Hafnir was determined to make the Hauna of the Nitikos the most splendid festival that had ever been. He threw himself, body and soul, into its preparation— no expense was spared. All the great clans were invited, and the silkies of the Velt were welcomed in their hundreds. As the Hauna approached, the winding road into the valley filled with traffic. Musicians flocked to Oathguard from every corner of the realm. The campsites swelled with friendly faces, and the Morai in the Nitikos grew and grew until they towered over the field like trees. The weather was perfect. A cool breeze eased the heat of the day, and the nights were warm enough to spend uncovered beneath the stars. Crickets churred. Cook fires crackled. The sounds of laughter and excited conversation drifted from camp to camp long into the evening. Soon, nothing was left to do but wait. And then, not even that. At sunset, seven days before Evenbright, drums began to sound from all around the valley walls. Crowds streamed into the Nitikos. The festival had begun. The celebrants found themselves wandering wide-eyed, through an enchanted forest of mushrooms. The field had become a palace filled with wonders. Its floor was the tender grass, its ceiling was the sparkling sky, and the stalks that made up its walls could be tasted to bring about curious sensations and mystical visions. All of its rooms were linked together by passages, easy climbs, or soft-sided tunnels. And each room had its own music, its own pleasures, and its own breed of painted and costumed revelers. Sprites buzzed through the air, chasing schools of floating, luminescent carp. Moon deer bounded through the glades and left patches of flowers growing in their hoof prints. Shades of long-dead ancestors appeared to offer counsel and forgiveness. Birds of Owaira strutted about, 
The scintillating patterns of light on their tail feathers hypnotized all who looked upon them. Some even swore they saw elves. On and on the Hauna went. One day bled into the next as time bent around the Nitikos like a stream around a stone. The people lost themselves in their joy and awe. On the seventh night, in the dreamlike heat of the celebration, Thane Hafnir found himself at the center of the field. A gigantic bonfire burned there, throwing red, green, and purple shoots of flame high into the night sky. A ring of immense morai surrounded it. From their gills rained a mist of glittering spores that brought ecstasy to the dancing crowds below. The drums were like thunder. Forgetting his sorrows at last, Thane Hafnir leapt into the fray. There, among the surging, sweating bodies, he saw a woman who wore the orange and white costume of a fire deer. She moved like one possessed by the gods. Her hips swayed and bounced. She threw herself into the air as if she would fly and hammered the ground with the rhythm of her feet. Hafnir was entranced. He approached her. She accepted him. That night, they coupled like mad creatures beneath the rosy light of a full maiden moon. When at last the sun rose and the sleepy revelers opened their eyes, Hafnir's play partner was revealed. She was none other than Essenaya of Banyerhold, the daughter of the great Thane Yelonen. She and Hafnir were married, and in due course Essenaya gave birth to their daughter. This daughter they named Frirla. And by the time she had reached young womanhood, it was commonly held that she was the most beautiful woman in all of Elgiscon. Neither Thanyalonen, nor Esenaya, nor the young Freerla were ever told anything about Hafnir's firstborn. 